Tonight we're moving into the third chapter of the book of Hebrews. As we look back, let's begin with just a brief review. Now the main thing I want you to understand in these seminars, I'm trying to give you an overview of the book and what's happening and how the different parts of the Bible fit together, okay? Because otherwise, we so often look at these things as uh, independent of one another. First, let's look back at chapter 1 in the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 1, we were told that God speaks to his people in various ways, especially through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his Son, Secondly, we learned about the divinity of Jesus. That was the theme of the church uh, first chapter, was that Christ is a divine being. And we saw how he was involved in the creation of everything. And we also found out, and that was verses 4 through 14, we also found out that he is exalted above angels. Angels are created beings. Christ is not. He was from all eternity in that direction and all eternity in that direction. When we reach the second chapter, we find that he warns us against drifting away from these beautiful truths of Christ and his divinity and God's plan of salvation reaching out. God coming down from heaven to try to reach out to human beings. And he says that there's a real danger that we will neglect the great salvation that we have. Why? We'll find ourselves drifting away, losing faith, beginning to doubt. All these things will help us to neglect our faith. He speaks also about the superiority superiority of the humanity of Jesus. He's superior in his humanity than all of humanity. Now we may say that Jesus had something we don't. Yes and no. Yes and no. You see. There are those who say, well, he was God, therefore He didn't sin because he was divine. Not so. He took on your fallen humanity, but he didn't take your bent to sin. He took on the depraved human body after thousands of years of practicing sin. And yet he resisted. He undid what Adam did. You see, in plain words, because he never chose to fall. He could have fallen if he had chosen to, but he did not choose to. And as a result, he became the pattern for us. He laid aside his divinity when he came to this world. Before he came here, All we know is he was a spirit. Well, a spirit, the Holy Spirit can be here, there, and there all at the same time. 
The Holy Spirit never dies, you see. The Holy Spirit, as far as I know, doesn't go hungry and thirsty. But when he took on your humanity, he took on all of this. But because he never gave in to sin, he never gave the devil a nook or a cranny to grab a hold of him. He resisted him. And as a result, his humanity was superior to ours in that sense. But he still is our elder brother. You know, I've never been tempted to turn stone into bread. But Jesus was. You see, the devil knows I can't turn stones into bread. But Jesus could. Yet he put aside that ability and he was submissive to his father. So even though he was divine in his humanity, he was obedient even unto death. And because of his death, because of the suffering he went through, in the second chapter it said that it enabled him to better understand humanity. And because he could understand humanity, and because he was marrying divinity and humanity together, and by his death, he becomes our great high priest. Tonight we're going to go into chapter 3. You see, here we talked first about the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and now it's going to come down to why did he have to come? Why didn't he speak through humanity? Why didn't he speak through angels? Well, he did. He tried to speak through angels. He gave the book of Revelation, don't forget. It was given from the Father to the Son, who turned it into symbols, and then gave it to the angel, Gabriel, who gave it to John to give to us. You see. So he did try to use angels. But angels cannot sympathize with us. Because angels have never been redeemed. You see, angels are either saved or lost. They've never been redeemed. They've never been bought back. They don't know what it's like to be a repentant sinner. You see. And because of this, Jesus became our high priest and our salvation is through him if we are children of faith. Now, the theme of this third chapter is faith. Now, there are those who say that in the Old Testament, well, the Old Testament people, they were saved by their works, but in the New Testament, we're saved by faith. Well, stop and think. Let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were told, don't eat of that tree or you're going to die. And then the serpent comes along and says, is that what God told you? Hey, look at me, I'm eating this fruit and I haven't croaked. So, what's wrong with it? Here, take a bite, you like it. 
And instead of resisting sin, Eve gave in to sin and then tempted Adam. You see, whenever we do something sinful, the devil uses us to tempt other people. You see. Stop and think about it. You're never saved or lost by yourself. Now think about that. You're never saved alone and you're never lost alone. You'll take somebody else with you. Whether it's your children, whether it's your spouse, whether it's the neighbor, whoever it is. Because you have something very dangerous, it's called influence. And because of your influence, you will affect or infect somebody else, one way or another. And so we find that Eve, the first thing she does is tempt Adam. And because of a lack of faith, Adam and Eve fell. And the rest is history. So we find that if they had been faithful, they would not have fallen. So God told them in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, he said, and if you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis 3.15, and I think you all know it pretty well by now. Somebody want to read that to us? This is what is called the proto-gospel or the first gospel. And notice what it says there. Somebody read it to me. Who's got it? Go ahead. Do you know that that text, when it uses the word bruise, there are two words there. It will bite your heel and you will crush its head. This is what was taking place at the cross. Even though the devil struck first and caused a death blow to the Messiah, he also was destroying himself because the Messiah crushed his strongest weapon, the grave. He came out of the grave and therefore he breaks the ground for everybody else to come out of the grave in due time. And so we find that that is the first promise. Now, who did it say would take the initiative? Yeah, but who would take the initiative? I will put enmity, that means strife, struggle. I will put a great controversy between the devil and his angels and Christ and his people. Right? Or the devil and his people and Christ and his people. All right, let's go a little bit further. Adam and Eve looked forward. They understood that to be messianic. They understood that the Messiah was going to come. And lo and behold... Eve has her first baby. And what should she call him? Cain. You see, the word Cain, here's Eve. If you look at it in its context, Eve said, I have begotten. I have begotten the Messiah. They really thought that Cain was the Messiah. I have begotten the Messiah. She was taking the credit for it. She thought that being the promised Messiah, she had something to do with giving birth to the Messiah. 
And he didn't turn out too well. She had another son. What was his name? Abel. Now, Abel was a good man. But did Abel bring Adam and Eve's salvation? Why? He died. But even if he didn't die, could he bring them salvation just because he was a good man? No. And as you look at these names, the name Cain actually means not only begotten, but it means possession. Getting. I have gotten a son. Getting. You see, by our works, we cannot get salvation. What does Abel's name mean? The name Abel means nothing. That's what it means, nothing. It means a breath, poof, a vapor. It's here, it's gone, poof. You see, even bad Cain could not bring salvation to Adam and Eve. Good Abel could not bring salvation to Adam and Eve. And when Cain was exiled and and Abel was dead, Adam and Eve are still lost in sin. They were lost. They had no Savior. And they're wondering, where will this seed that will deliver us come from? They had nothing that they could look at. There was no evidence of that coming true. But they had to believe that God was a man of his word. Right? And they waited, and they waited. Well, Adam and Eve probably had other kids during that time, too. According to Josephus, I can't remember the exact number. You'd have to look it up. But uh, in Antiquity of the Jews, I think he said in the footnote, it says that they had, what was it, 26 Wait a minute, 26 daughters and uh, 32 sons or something like that. They had a lot of kids. I don't know if they would be born in between that time or after. But they waited and they waited and they waited. Adam and Eve had to wait about 100 years. They had to, by faith, believe that God was going to restore them. And then it says... All of a sudden, a third son is born. What's his name? Seth. Seth. You know what the word Seth means? It means put. That's what it means, put. And what does it say in in Genesis 3.15? I, God, will put a Savior there. You see, this was not from human initiative. It was not through genetics. It was not through inheritance. It was because God chose by his grace to put a child there. And that child, Seth, became the father of all of us. The Canaanites, they were wiped out in the flood. Abel, if he had any kids, they were gone too. And so, 
Noah and his family were descendants of Seth. And so you are all related to Seth. Now, it was by faith in that promise that he gave in Genesis 3.15. And what does it say of Noah? Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord said he was going to destroy the world by a flood. Noah exercised faith and believed that God would do that. And as a result, he acted obediently. He could have said, well, I believe God's going to send a flood. I believe it. But if he didn't pick up the hammer and nail, he may have been swimming, right? He had to act on the faith that he had. I mean, let's face it, it had never rained up to that point. They had never had the vast downpours that we have today. Uh, they may have boats for the ponds and, you know, the lakes, but nothing of the scale that Noah had to build. And so we find that faith requires obedience. And Enoch, it was because Enoch believed God Because Enoch walked with God, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? You see, they got to walk in the same direction. And so Enoch had to believe God and walk in the light of his truth. And finally he got so close to heaven, the Lord said to him one day, you know, Enoch, your character is more like the characters I have in heaven. You'd feel more comfortable with angels than you do with other human beings. I'll tell you what, why don't you come on over to my house? Why don't you come live with me? And Enoch stepped from this life into the next life without ever dying. Why? He was a down payment on the second coming of Jesus. You see, Moses would represent those who die and are resurrected. But Enoch and Elijah represent people who step from this life into that life without ever dying. Aren't there two classes when Jesus comes back? I want to be among the the second class that never dies. I mean, you may say, ah, wouldn't living forever be be uh, boring. I'll tell you what, it beats the alternative. If you think living forever is boring, try being dead forever. Is that any more joyful? You see? And so it was by faith. This is what the whole third chapter is based around. It's based around faith. Now, as we go into the third chapter, you have in front of you Copies of the New King James. On the board, I'm using the Old King James. But I'm going to be reading it from the New King James because I like it. And you can just look at the board as I go through. Notice, as we move into chapter 3, notice it begins with the word, therefore. Now, therefore, you will notice chapter 2 began with, therefore. Chapter 3 begins with therefore, and chapter 4 begins with therefore. 
what is this telling us? It's telling us that verses 1 through 4 are one unit. They're one basic thought. The divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and righteousness by faith are connected together. And one leads into the other. You will see this arising again a little bit later in chapter 6 and 12. They also have therefores. But they're talking about a little different subject there. It's a change of thought. Now let's look at it. It says, therefore, holy brethren. Well, wait a minute. I thought we were sinners. How are we holy brethren? I thought we were sinners. And yet God calls us saints. He calls us holy. Why? By our possessions, by our character, by our goodness? No. But because we have accepted Christ and his goodness. Notice, it says, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. Well, look at that. I already showed you that in English, therefore, connects those together. But the apostle and high priest, Jesus is called by two uh, titles. Do you realize this is the only place that I know of in the scriptures where Jesus is called an apostle? Now, the word apostolos in Greek, it means one who has a special message. Actually, it comes from an old Greek word that means a ship that is sent with a special cargo. That's really what it is. And Jesus was a ship sent with a special cargo. The message of salvation. He sends it to us. God wouldn't even entrust it to Gabriel to bring to us. He sends it to the divine Son of God, which Gabriel didn't qualify for, or Lucifer, but the divine Son of God, who now takes on our humanity. And he became a special ambassador for God and high priest. The last chapter was the first mention in chapter 2 of Jesus as being high priest. Now stop and think about it. Jesus had no right to be a high priest. Did you ever, did you ever consider the fact that Jesus was a layman? Right? Jesus was a layman. As a matter of fact, Daniel was a layman, wasn't he? What about John? John the Baptist, he was a layman too. Why was Jesus a layman? He came from the wrong side of the tracks. You see, the priests were to come from Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, he didn't qualify to be a priest. So all the time that Jesus was walking and talking on earth, he was a layman. Now stop and think about that, folks. The ministry is put in your laps. The ministry is given to the layman to bring to the world, isn't it? 
the priesthood of believers. And so we find here that Jesus is called our high priest. He becomes a high priest. Why? Because of his death. Because of his suffering. The emphasis of this chapter is on the word faith. And as we look into verse 2, it says, Who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful to all his house? Now, who appointed Jesus to be a high priest or an apostle? It was God the Father, right? Jesus didn't get his title from heredity. He was appointed and he had to take an oath to be our high priest. An oath of fidelity to us and to God. That's why he could be the great bridge between heaven and earth. And this is where this word faith comes in. And it says that, it says, For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Earlier today, I was home, probably about two hours ago, I was home, John Bolt and I are building a shed in my backyard. And actually, it's looking pretty good. That's because of John, not because of me. You should see it if I built it, you see. But if that comes out nice, it's more to my glory and his glory than the shed itself. The shed is just wood, right? But it will look nice and we'll be happy with it. And this is what he's saying. Now, when it uses the word house, That comes from the Greek word oikos. Okay, oikos. You've probably seen an advertisement on TV. What is it, yogurt or something? Yeah, yogurt. Well, I didn't build my house on yogurt. But the word house is the Greek word oikos. And oikos means more than just the structure. Oikos means the household. It means the people in it. It means not just you and your wife and your children. It means all your relatives and all your friends. And in the Bible times, a lot of the Roman soldiers, they had slaves and servants. Remember, what's his name? Uh, Cornelius. Cornelius wanted Peter to come and preach to his household. His house, his oikos. And this is what I meant when I said, you have influence on other people. And what did Cornelius do? The first thing he did was invited everybody in his household, maybe even his neighbors, to come hear the apostles speak. Why? That faith would be built up in them. Now notice what it says also, in particular, it starts talking about Moses. Now why is he talking about Moses? Because to the early Christians who were basically Jewish. Moses was a very important person. Judaism was based around Moses. You see, before Moses was born, when the time of Abraham 
who was also, by the way, a layman, you see, the people at that time were referred to as Hebrews. It wasn't until after they went into captivity in Babylon and then came back from Babylon that they were called Jews. Why were they called Jews? Because the people who came back were basically the tribe of Judah and some Benjaminites and Levites and uh, some others with them. And they came back to that area and settled. Therefore, that area became known as Judea, the land of Judah, you see. And Ezra, Ezra was the father of modern Judaism. It was from Ezra's time on, he began to collect the scrolls and establish the canon of the Old Testament. And so we find that Judaism looks back to Ezra as the one who made the uh, canon for the Old Testament. And to them, Moses was extremely important. Why? Because it was Moses who brought them out of Egyptian bondage, out of slavery, and brought them over to the promised land. You see, Moses was a type of Messiah. What does Jesus do to us? He takes us from the slavery, not of Egypt. By the way, Egypt and uh, atheism, by the way, in the book of Daniel and elsewhere, is synonymous, uh, atheism and Egypt. He takes us out of unfaith, out of unbelief, and he brings us to the glorious kingdom that's before us. And so we find that this is the theme. It's based around the word faith. Now, what is faith? Because we find that in English, we often use the word faith and belief together. But if you notice in verse 4, it says, For every house was built by someone. But he who built all things is God. Ultimately, the one who built up not only Judaism, but Christianity is God. And Jesus, being the founder of Christianity, is God. You see, it's establishing his divinity again. Now, as you go to verse 5, it starts talking about Moses. And it says, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house, as a servant, for a testimony to those things which would be spoken of there afterwards. So what Moses was doing was a down payment, was a miniature of what Jesus would talk about later. Now, it's, we study a lot about the, the sanctuary, the tent in the wilderness, the temple and the priesthood and what it all meant. But do you know that the book of Hebrews says that this is, these things are the subject of elementary school. That we are still struggling in elementary school. And he tells us that we need to look beyond that and see what the broader spiritual applications of this is. And we'll touch on that, where he actually says that in a roundabout way. Now, it's interesting 
that in the Greek, there is no word, no single word for unbelief. There's no such word, per se, as unbelief. It's either faith or unfaith. If you say, well, I don't believe that. What you're saying is, I unfaith that. Or if you say, yeah, I believe that, you say, I faith it. Because the word faith in Greek is used, and it's the word pistis. Pistis means faith. And we need to realize that faith has a different, a deeper meaning than just belief. You probably have heard the story about the, the man who was going to ride a bicycle across a tightrope at Niagara Falls. And everybody gathered. This really happened, by the way. They gathered on the American side and they gathered on the Canadian side and they watched him ride it across. And finally, when he got on the other side, he said, how many of you believe that I can ride this bicycle back again? Yay! Everybody raised their hands. Yay! He says, okay, who will go with me? Boom! Their hands came down fast. You see. And finally, a little voice said, I'll go with you, Dad. And his young son got on the bike, and they both rode across. You see, there's a difference between belief and faith. The word belief means, yes, intellectually, I know it can be done. But faith is more than that. The word faith really means putting your full weight on it. If I didn't believe this chair would hold me up, I wouldn't have rested my full weight on it. That's what the word faith symbolizes. Now, let me ask you. You can believe in God. A lot of people say, I believe in God. So does the devil. Has it done him much good? See, he believes in it, but is the devil believing enough to put his trust, his confidence, his full weight, and everything he's worth on it? Uh-uh. But this is what God asks of us. Trust me in the good times as well as the bad times. Trust me when your finances are going down. Trust me when your kids are misbehaving. Trust me when you're sick. Trust me if you're having marital problems. Trust me that I will make something good come from it. Right now, you may not be able to see the good in it. But if you put your full weight, your full confidence in me, I will bring about a change. In plain words, I will give you hope. Now, that's another interesting word. The word hope, especially in the book of Romans, the word hope. There is no such word as the word hope, per se, in the original language. Two of the words most commonly used for hope are a tightly coiled rope or a child. 
Now, what was Adam and Eve looking for? What? They were looking for a child whom they hoped could restore them. You see? The seed of the woman. And God said, I will put it there. It's not going to be your making. I'm going to put it there. And this is what he does with us. By faith, if we place our full confidence in God, he puts it there. Now, the word faith. The word pistis means faith. Pistos means faithful. Pistios means to have faith. And apestia, apestia means the absence of faith. We get the word apostasy from it, you see. Apistia. It means to unfaith. If a person believed these things and deserted them and went the other way, they have apostatized. They have unfaithed it. You see what's coming from? And this is what God is trying to get across to us. Let's look at verse 5. I mentioned a few of these things already. I'll skip ahead. We mentioned that God tells us that we need to be careful that we don't drift away. It says in verse 5, it says, And Moses indeed was faithful in all his household as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken of afterward. Look at 6. But Christ as a son over his own house. Notice, not over somebody else's, his own. He claims everything as his. Whose house we are, what's that word? If. If. That makes it conditional. If we hold fast and the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. All right, what is this saying? As we look at it, it says we can be a part of the house of God if we hold on to Christ. This is called abiding. Abide in Christ means stick with it. Hang on. And notice it says that they will hold on all the way to the end. Now you've got to remember these Hebrew people they were thinking of giving up things and going back to the old temple, going back to the sacrificial system, going back to the old-time religion. And he is saying to hold fast. Don't quit. Don't give up. This is why it says in the New Testament, he that endureth to the end, what? Will be saved. We've got to go all the way with the Lord. I can't help but think of the guy who was swimming the English Channel. And he says, oh, this is too hard. So he swam 80% of the way. And he says, this is just too hard. So he turned around and swam back again. You know, hey, if we have faith in the Lord, if we look back and we see that he's brought us 80% of the way, don't we have confidence he'll take us the rest of the way? Look at Daniel 2, that great image that Daniel saw. Babylonians came and went. Medes and Persians came and went. Greeks came and went. 
Rome came and went. Even the ten kingdoms came and went. You know what? We're down in the toenails of time. What are we looking for? The stone that was cut out without hands that will set up his kingdom. If he has been right 2,600 years with 100% accuracy, don't you think he'll be right a few more years? This is having confidence in God and going all the way. I want you to know I was not born into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I chose to become a Seventh-day Adventist. I've never regretted it a day in my life. We've had our ups and downs. You know, we've had problems and trials. But, you know, the Lord has always been there. He's never let me down. And if I ever apostatize, which I pray I never do, it would be because of my own decision. I chose to be a part of this. And I have no intention of going anywhere else. Because I believe God will take me the rest of the way. Brought us this far. Why won't he take us the rest of the way? My friends, hang fast. Hang in there. That's what it's all about. But notice what it says in verse 7. Verse 7, we start getting into the second warning message. The first one, we had to be careful of drifting away. Now in verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Actually, what he's doing, he's quoting from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. Way back then, in the time of the Psalms, in the time of David, he was predicting what the book of Hebrews is saying. You see, the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they could actually have made it to the promised land in a matter of weeks. But because they diddled around and their lack of faith, it took them 40 years. And then they never crossed over. You notice he doesn't mention in that text anything about Caleb or Joshua. Because Caleb and Joshua had faith. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about those who didn't believe him. They came right up to the edge of the Jordan and they said, oh, the giants are too big. And they formed a return to Egypt committee. How many times do we do that? The Lord brings us up to the edge of victory, and we back down because we don't have the courage to go on. And it says here, again, it begins with another therefore, or wherefore, in some translations. The Holy Spirit is speaking with urgency to those who have drifted away, calling them back, as in verse 7. Many 
were resisting his pleas. So he warns them, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. It's interesting that these people could have been in the kingdom if they had trusted the Lord. But instead, they formed a back-to-Egypt committee. God called his people out of Egypt, and now they want to return? That's what he's talking about in the book of Hebrews. And there will be those when, in the last days, when we start getting National Sunday Law and all these other trials and tribulations that will be coming, there will be those who say, oh, well, it's too hard to stand up for the Lord. I think I'll just join everybody else. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into that same pattern. We can't condemn them. We're condemning ourselves when we do. God called the people out of Egypt, but in the wilderness, a committee wanted to take them back into bondage, into slavery and false gods. That tested God's patience until they reached the border of Canaan and they refused to cross over into the promised land. God let them have their way. Interestingly enough, it was they who said, it would be better for us to die in the wilderness than to go over there. And God said, okay, I hear you. That's what you want. You got it. Who was it who pronounced a death sentence upon them? They pronounced it upon themselves, didn't they? In the destruction of the devil and his angels at the end of the world, do you realize that God in his love will let them have what they wanted? They would rather die than spend eternity in a land that they couldn't get in trouble. And so God allows them to have their way. He says that Moses was a faithful leader, but Jesus was an even more faithful leader. I noticed also in verse 8 and onwards, it talked about today. Today, if you hear my voice, notice the if, do not harden your heart. What is hardening the heart? It is saying no to the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit leads you into more light, more understanding, he expects you to do something with it. As we look at Jesus and Moses, he makes a comparison between them. Notice here that Moses, of course, was just a servant. But Jesus was the son. Moses, he was a part of the house. And what was the house? That was the, that was the sacrificial system. That was the, the sacrifices and the offerings of the tabernacle. That was the house that he built up. But Jesus was the builder of a better house because he is the sacrifice. He was a witness to the revelation to come. Jesus was a fulfillment of those Old Testament revelations. And so we find that there's a parallel here. I'm not going to get into the word tonight, anyway. I'm not going to get into the word uh, chiasms. But the whole Bible is built on a structure called a chiasm. It comes from the Greek letter chi, which is an X, okay? That's why a lot of people, when they're writing shorthand, instead of saying Christmas, they'll write 
Xmas. Because X is the first letter in Jesus' name. Christos. C-H. It's an X shape. And if you take that X and you cut the top off of it, or you could reverse it if you want to go that way, in plain words, what is here will also be here. Stop and think about it. We have the creation of the world in Genesis. We have the recreation in Revelation. We have the fall of man here. We have the restoration of man here. We have a Babylon here. We have a Babylon there. And you look at different things and you will see them. And what is in the middle? It's the cross. Because there's three things that are important to the biblical mind. One is the creation and the judgment. The creation and the judgment. Why the judgment? Because that determines who's in the new creation, you see. So you have the creation and the fall. You have the judgment of the wicked and the righteous to make it into the new creation. So you have creation, judgment, and right in the middle you have salvation. You have the Messiah. He's the high point. Now if you reverse that, here is man when he was originally created. He's up here. But because of sin, he goes all the way down to the lowest point. That's where Jesus comes in. He comes in and he changes him and redeems him and changes his character, and pulls him out of the pit so that he can be restored to the condition that Adam was in before he fell. Isn't it marvelous? This is all in the literature of the Bible. And all through the book of Hebrews, you'll see these structures where they'll mention something, and then a little while later they'll mention the same thing. It's very interesting... uh, thing. You look at the Bible, you'll see this pattern coming up. And we demonstrate our faith by putting our full weight of trust in him. And many people, I've already mentioned that about the tightrope walker, who don't want to put their full weight in Jesus. And therefore, they will not make it to the kingdom. Now, these texts, this is what it's saying in the old King James. Now, as we look at verse 18, It says, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Not unbelief, unfaith. There be an evil heart of unfaith in departing from the living God. And the living God was Christ on earth in this case. And then he says in verse 13, but... He wants us to exhort one another daily while it is called today. Notice the word today pops up again. I started to count todays, and I think I counted seven or eight of them. That he keeps reporting this word. Why? What is it? It's an urgent message. You don't know what tomorrow will hold. Sometimes people say, well, I'll get baptized when I'm, you know, after I retire. Who says you're going to be around when you retire? 
You know, you could have a truck retire you early. Right? Matter of fact, he'll tire you as well as retire you if you get run over. And so we need to not put these things off. I remember seeing a cartoon once in in a, a book. And it shows this theologian at a big chalkboard and he's drawing all these last day events out and everything. And then it shows the angels beside him. And he turns and he looks and he says, you're here early. (laughs) He had it planned out. They came at the wrong time. It's their fault, not mine. You see, how many times do we plan our lives out and it doesn't go quite the way we expect it to go. And so there's a sense of urgency that's here. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. An evil heart. The Bible says that your heart is evil beyond belief. You can't imagine under the right pressure just how, just what you can and may do if it's not for the will of God. I had this brought home very vividly to me. In one church that I pastored, within a thousand miles of here, there was a factory the next road over, and that factory employed a lot of people in the community, and probably about a third of the church worked over at that factory. And these people went to church together. They cooperated in vacation Bible schools together. They, you know, they did projects together, missionary outreach, community service. But, you know, that factory closed. And as it was going into bankruptcy, it let the workers go, except for a certain few. And they picked and they chose those that they wanted to keep. And it was just an interesting sociological uh, observation I made. Some of the very people who worked together on vacation Bible school and everything, they began to turn and say, well, that's because uh, they like you better than they like me. That's because you've got, you know, you've been buttering up the boss. And, well, that's not fair that they let you stay and me go. And I thought to myself, if something as simple as losing your job can get you to turn on people, I wonder what else we would do under even more severe economic pressure. You see, our evil hearts are evil beyond belief. I know the devil gets us to do a lot of things, but I'm bad enough I don't even need them. I can get into trouble without them. What about you? You see, he can tempt me, but he can't make me do it, in spite of what Flip Wilson used to say. And so as we look further down here, it says in verse 14. Oh, by the way, 13. Today, i got to keep going with these slides. It says in 13, 
but exhort one another daily. You know what that means? That means to encourage one another. When, when you see somebody who's, who's really under a lot of pressure and they're depressed and they're down, encourage them. To, Come on, brother, you can make it. I'll help you. You know, if you help a person who's in need, it goes a lot better. Have you ever observed people who are depressed cannot sing? Can you think of too many depressed people you know who go around singing? Have you also noticed that they have the curtains closed all the time? And why not say, come on, hey, let me sing to you. Soon as you start singing, that picks up your spirit and start opening the curtains and let the light in. We need to let the light of Christ into our lives. And it says to encourage one another. We don't need to be criticizing one another, especially those who are weaker in the faith. We need to say, come on, you can make it, I'll help you. You goofed, you fell down, let's get up and we'll start all over again. This is what he's talking about. Exhort them. And in verse 13 it says, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The devil deceived Eve. And sin is deceitful. Like I said last time, you know, if it wasn't pleasurable, why would you do it? Why would you do something that isn't pleasurable? And God says we need to overcome this. Look at verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Here again, he that endureth to the end. Look at verse 15. While it is said, today, once again, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then verse 16. For who, having heard, rebelled, indeed, was it not those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? If Moses couldn't lead them into the promised land, then what hope is there to go back to the old religion, the old sacrificial system? Only Christ can lead us into the promised land. Look at verse 17. Now, with whom was he angry? Forty years. By the way, you notice the number 40 pops up a lot in the Bible. It pops up an awful lot. It was because of their rebellion that they were in the wilderness. For uh, was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? God gave them what they wanted. Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. Now, the notice the word rest, because in the next chapter, he's going to be talking about a different kind of rest. Usually when we see the word rest, we think of what word? Shabbat, right? Which means Sabbath. But that isn't the word he's using here. He's using another word called Cataposis. Another word. There are many words for rest. 
Matter of fact, in the book of Ruth, Naomi says to Ruth that rest until Boaz works things out. What was the rest there implying? What was a woman's rest? It was in the home of her husband. It meant security, you see. And that's what Naomi and Ruth were looking for. They were looking for rest. They were looking for security and safety. Someone to protect them from being abused. And do you know that that is what the word husband means? It means the house band. It's the one who holds the house together. Why? So that those within it won't be harmed or hurt or attacked. Unfortunately, in too many homes, it's the husband who's the perpetrator. Men, we need to start thinking of what God has called us to do. It's to provide safety, security. That's what the word husband means. That's what a woman's rest was in the Bible. And as we look further on verse 16, it says that those who rebelled in the wilderness never made it to the rest that was promised them. Consequently, there must yet be a rest ahead. Now notice that Caleb and Joshua made it into the promised land because of their faith. They went into the rest that was promised them when the others didn't. They all had the same promise, but two put their full confidence in that promise. And then it says in verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So obedience is connected. Verse 19, the last verse of this chapter. So we see that they could not enter in because of unfaith, unbelief. You see the essence of faith now coming out. This is laying the ground for chapter 4. Actually, I would like to have done chapter 4 together, but there's too many things in chapter 4. Chapters 1 through 4 basically are setting the background for chapter 5 and what comes after. Because in chapter 5 and afterwards, it starts talking about this high priest and his work. And it starts talking By the time you get on a ways, it starts talking about a strange character called Melchizedek. And who is this guy, Melchizedek? I'm reading a book right now I got at the library. I only paid a dollar for it. They were selling these books, you know. And uh, I picked it up for a dollar, and I thought, the name of it is Why Priests. It's written by a Catholic man, and it's dedicated to a priest. And he's saying, What's the sense of having priests? And he talks about Melchizedek, and he talks about Christ being the ultimate high priest. And it's really interesting. But the point of the matter is, what these first four chapters are doing is preparing us, that's elementary school, is preparing us now for high school, you see. And by the time we get to the end, We're ready for college. 
He's trying to bring them along in their understanding so that they will know what they believe, why they believe it. And we are to take heed because if we have an unbelieving, unfaithed heart, we may miss the kingdom of God altogether. And we want to encourage and invite as many people as possible to join with us in moving toward the kingdom. This is what it's all about. And this is why we are to be steadfast. The word steadfast means hang in there. That's what it means. Oh, one thing there. Notice it says that they grieved. God was grieved for 40 years. He tried over and over again to them. Using the symbols of the sacrifices, he even spoke to them through the prophets, and they weren't getting the point. That's why he had to send the son, to show them a picture. You know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. The Old Testament was the thousand words, and Jesus was the picture. All talking about the character of God, and this is what it's all about that we may reproduce the character of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. And so we see, folks, this is the theme of chapter 3. Tonight, I want to summarize what we've learned. We reviewed the highlights of chapter 2. We found out that Jesus is an apostle and a high priest. We found that the word pistis is the word that means belief or faith. And we find it's more than belief. It's faith is different. And Jesus is superior to Moses in his work and in his personhood. And the second warning was not to harden your heart. And as the Israelites were lost in the wilderness and didn't make the rest, he wants us to go all the way. Only those who endure to the end will be saved. All right, you ready to take your quiz? You know, I'm going to do it differently this time for a good reason. And the good reason is I ran out of envelopes. Okay? So I've got it on the screen, but I've also got it on paper. And we'll see how much you remember of what we have talked about tonight. Okay? Here we go. All right. Let's look at the first question. Jesus is an apostle. True or false? Write it on your paper. Don't tell me. All right. Number two. Faith and believing mean exactly the same. True or false? Number three. The promise that we may enter God's rest is a conditional promise. Hardening of one's heart is an instantaneous happening. Number five, the righteous enter God's rest due to their faith in him. True or false? And then, number six, the Greek word pistis means what in English? Okay, you got them all? Here we go. Number one, Jesus is an apostle. True. Faith and believing mean exactly the same thing. No, they really don't. Faith implies putting your full confidence and weight in something. 
The promise that we may enter God's rest is a conditional promise. It is true. The hardening of one's heart is instantaneous happening. No, God labors with us before he throws us in the trash can. Okay? The righteous enter God's rest due to their faith in him. True. And the Greek word is, pistis means faith. Anybody get them all right? Okay. Was that before or after I changed the slide? (laughs) Okay. Listen, let's have a word of prayer. Your homework tonight is to reread chapter 3, move on to chapter 4. Okay, and then invite somebody else next week. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll bless us as we continue to study your holy word. Fill us with your spirit. And Lord, help us to trust in you and to give ourselves fully to you. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.